Welcome to today's episode of the Face by Alex Pike podcast. I'm very honored to interview the king of boobs, Australian-based plastic surgeon, Dr. Karosh Tavakoli. I hope you enjoy our discussion. wanted to thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Tavakoli. Pleasure, Alex. Um, happy to be here. So I want to talk about um, the timeline of breast augmentations. We've recently been reminded of Pamela Anderson from her Netflix documentary, and it really took me back thinking about that iconic, round, high-profile implant, Demi Moore, I don't know if you remember, G.I. Jane. Or, I'm not that old. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm showing my age. Um, also of that time was Victoria Beckham. Victoria Beckham, yes. Tory Spelling. Tory Spelling. Look, breast augmentation history is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, to me because that's all I do. Yes. <laughs> but it started in the 60s, as you know, 1964 in Texas as just an experiment and gradually got momentum through the 60s and was until 80s when it started being popularized in the media, mm -hmm. in you know celebrity sort of culture of breast augmentation, as you named them. The biggest changes were initially it was just providing a fill for someone who was flat-chested, mm -hmm. overly flat-chested, in a reconstructive way. And then gradually as the experiment and all the experience increased, aesthetics of it came into play. And initially it was um, high profile, low profile. The first 20 years, there was only three, four sizes. And most patients will tell you from the 70s or early 80s, they didn't get a choice, mm -hmm. even in the late 80s. And then there was a big stop button in early 90s with the Dow Corning disaster. Implants rupturing left, right and center. And just the biggest lawsuit uh, med medical lawsuit on the planet was um, Dow Corning. And that put a massive pause to women getting breast implants. And between 92 to 97, there was a quite a worldwide pause and the advent of saline implants. Yes. And then they became more unaesthetic because the saline looked like two, um, two balloons filled yes. with water um, with projection of various type and the fill was horrendous. Mm -hmm. So breast implant took a bit of a back um, step in the mid 90s and uh, in, in America the gel as we know it, silicon depending on the density we call it gel, was banned till 2006, 2007 when FDA lifted the ban. That was a 15 year ban. Wow I didn't know that. That was a 15 year ban which meant for 15 years gel implant research got paused in America, which is a hub of research on the planet. And that would be the cohesive gel? The cohesive gel. Yeah. Well, there was a transition. Okay. So the Dow Corning, anything from 60s to 80, uh, 92 was liquid, mm -hmm. liquid silicon. Okay. So the liquid silicon got superseded completely by all the manufacturers and they went to cohesive and then there were different types of cohesive. Low cohesive, what the Americans love, mm -hmm. mid cohesive, um, and they were literally called that, and co high cohesive or gummy bear, which was essentially uh, anatomical. Advent of anatomical happened in mid-90s. Mm -hmm. 
even though the very first implants were anatomical, they got superseded because of rotation, lack of knowledge how to use them. So by the 70s, everything was round, 80s round, 90s initially started round, and then saline came out, anatomical gel came out, but anatomical gel was only Europe. Can I ask you, why did surgeons perform over the muscle? Mm-hmm. And when did under the muscle come yeah, into play? Yeah, that's a good question. So it was always over mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. No one even thought about covering implant with, with the muscle. It was a crazy idea that you can actually use this muscle, which we all thought was heavily functional for human movement and functionality, to cutting it and then utilizing it. And it was probably a marriage of reconstructive surgery, which always happens with aesthetic surgery. Mm -hmm. So cancer patients couldn't have it on top because of the thinness of the mastectomy flaps and radiotherapy. So that skin was heavily damaged. So Mm -hmm. in the 70s, they started just making an incision behind and putting an implant. Not in the dual plane. There were a lot of animation. Implants would move almost to the... And hit the biceps Mm -hmm. because it was just utilized in that way, completely submerged behind the pec muscle. And that kind of evolved over the years and the whole concept of dual plane by a Texan plastic surgeon, John Tebbett, which is the father of modern plastic surgery Mm -hmm. of the breast. Mm -hmm. And he taught us about utilizing and carving the pec major in order to use it for aesthetic breast augmentation. Fat grafting 10 years ago was not that common. Would you say that it's sort of the mainstay of your practice now, the fat grafting with the combination of breast augmentation? Fat grafting evolution is very interesting because I was part of it. finished my training in 2003 as a plastic surgeon in Australia. Mm-hmm. And 2004, I started my practice. So I remember seeing a lecture in Brazil in ISAPS 2006 and an Italian guy got up and spoke about fat grafting and I thought that was quite interesting but kind of at at the time it was a bit far-fetched and Mm -hmm. it was very reconstructive for breast cancer patients. Just most things in aesthetic surgery originate from reconstruction. But the problems at the time and still linger on fat necrosis and Mm -hmm. what do we do with this and that. But the notion of using fat grafting as a standalone still hasn't really moved that much in the past 10, 15 years mm-hmm. because we still have problem with resorption, with large volume, getting fat necrosis and hardness and interfering with mammography, which you don't have in other parts of the body where cancer is not a risk factor. We do know the notion of growth factors causing from, from the fat causing cancer is far-fetched now and it's now... The theories are obliterated. But I started looking at it in my demographic of patients in Sydney. We have a very unique beach culture, more unique than other parts of the world like Miami and Rio. And ours is very unique in the sense that our girls have a certain body type. Mm-hmm. And the body type is low fat. And they all love to have some sort of breast as part of the aesthetics. Australian Breast aesthetics always been about breast, way before the bum and other parts of the sure. body became popular mm-hmm. in more recent time, which is probably a brief popularity. Mm-hmm. So breast has been part of our culture, the bikini culture, and with that, the breast implant were always under the microscope. 
Mm -hmm. They look fake, they look high profile. I can see the edges. Absolutely. Gap is the cleavage, the cleavage, the cleavage. So yes. I learned early on, I was fortunate enough to have a busy practice within a few years and my experience went up exponentially and that helped fuel my interest in obviously breast surgery but also how to perfect breast surgery. So when I was a registrar, it was all about making an incision and sticking, it, sticking the implant in and hoping for the best. And if you didn't get hematoma, which was very high, capsular contracture yeah. at 40%, then you were doing a really good job. So that was my, my teaching or my part of my learning that that was the basis of breast implant surgery. But and aesthetically, it, it wasn't exactly right, was it? No. And no, it, was it was fairly obvious to even the untrained eye that it was an implant. Knowing someone had implant was not a big deal mm -hmm. because you could not cover it. Like you couldn't camouflage it. So if someone said, Daryl, give me an implant that is super natural, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I think a lot of what we learn as plastic surgeons in aesthetic surgery is parallels the culture of where you live, the society, and now the society as a globe because of social media. So it's no longer Australia versus Europe versus America. It's everyone's logging in every two seconds and looking at a girl from Rio or Sydney or vice versa. And I think the aesthetics has moved to the point that they want, we want the maximum out of aesthetic surgery in, to the large portion of the population with the least amount of show mm -hmm. to the point that um, can you tell I've had plastic surgery and, and obviously there's a portion of the population that doesn't want that. They want to be known to have had plastic surgery, you know, that with your facial sure. aesthetic medicine that, you know, big is better and you have the same. But the mainstream women do want more of a natural look. Mm -hmm. And with that, I started looking at the demographic of patients we're dealing with. And the demographic was the thin body mm -hmm. fat index of probably 20%, if not lower. And you had to camouflage these implants. So using the dual plane technique was not enough. Mm -hmm. So we, we hit a plateau where there was so much you could do with dual plane. We hit a plateau, we could do so much with a teardrop implant, which was all great. Mm -hmm. So there was one leap. Both of them were immensely important bring down the capsule, the contracture was a third revolution. So they don't go hard and no matter what you do, they look like bolt-on. And that was the biofilm theories that Australia is at the forefront of in, um, yeah. discovering. And so we, we, we got all that sorted, but there was still something lacking and still something lacking for the future. We can talk about that. But what was lacking was not enough flesh, mm. not enough flesh to go with this. So if the girl had a B cup or a C cup, would end up looking amazing, but if someone was an ACA, which is your typical client, it would be difficult to disguise the implant. Sorry to interrupt. So if Australian women are predominantly lower body fat, more athletic, where are you harvesting the fat from? Well, there's a challenge. Okay. So I think low volume fat grafting, which mm -hmm. I do, it tends to, I, I tend to find fat in 95% of my patients. Mm -hmm. There's 5% I can't and they know it. But I think if you search enough, there are women who do carry fat in certain pockets which are hard to get rid of, mm -hmm. even in our culture, in, in our demographic, I should say. So, yeah, I mean, it's just experience finding it and making sure you don't damage the fat as it comes out because you only have limited supply. And then using it in a hybrid way, you know, not wasting it and putting it into areas where you think it will enhance the look of the implant. So we're not at the point where the fat grafting is going to supersede implants. So we want to obviously be 
in the path of making the implants even safer because I don't think at the moment there's any discussion that we can get rid of implants like effectively to produce very high-end aesthetic results. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's much better to produce better implants and use a hybrid technique with fat grafting to get really good outcome. So a few years ago, one of my patients uh, visited you um, for her breast augmentation and we were chatting as she was having her uh, anti-wrinkle injections and yes. she mentioned to me that you have a procedure which is called an internal bra. Mm. And that was really the, the first time I sort of started to follow your work and seeing what you were doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the internal bra, Alex, came about as a result of my practice gearing towards breast implant only or breast surgery, I should say, and also a lot of revision work. And um, even back in my time in practice 18 years ago, there was a significant number of revisional cases floating around, a lot of all the plastic surgeons retired at the same time. And it was the beginning of patients coming back from Thailand and um, medical yeah. tourism. So I inadvertently in, got pulled into the world of breast um, revisional sure. surgery, which is very different. Mm -hmm. So breast implant surgery was you enter a field which is completely untouched mm -hmm. and you open up the planes the way you want it. You craft it, you tailor make it, and then you fit your implant and that's modern plastic surgery of the breast in, in my book. In a, in a revisional case, it's a complete opposite. You've got to deconstruct. You've got a, a ghastly pocket. Mm -hmm. You've got to reduce it. And part of and that... Sorry to interrupt again. Is that because the pocket was too big yeah, to so start with? And is that why they separate when two, the patient two lies reasons. down? Yep. Yeah, two reasons. Uh, good question. So number one was the American style of smooth implant mm -hmm. because we discussed how America fell behind yes. in the world of breast implant surgery because they had a 15-year ban. So they went to um, the default implant, which is round smooth, mm -hmm. which has been around from day dot. Sure. So they went and they changed the cohesiveness. So they went from liquid to a high, co like mm -hmm. medium cohesiveness, round pizza-sized implants because they always gravitated to a larger size. And to combat capsular contracture, mm -hmm. they did a mega pocket technique, which was popularized in southern states and just gained popularity in America to bring that 30, 40% rate of CapCon, capsular contracture yes. down to sub 10, which is more acceptable for a busy practice. Um, because CapCon and other complications can just paralyze your practice. If you're is, is that why it's suggested, or it was a certain number of years ago, that you needed to have your implants replaced every 10 years, for example, to avoid that? I think slightly different. I think that the replacing of implant is when implant company wisened up to the notion that instead of coming and sitting in your office and saying these implants live forever and okay. trying to sell themselves because the competition was so high mm -hmm. to the point that they were now being hit by class action. So they started putting warranties to some extent, but also disclaimers. Okay. So, okay, you know what? Like 20 years ago, we thought these are going to last you 50 years. You told the patient, patients are not coming after us. Sure. Can you start telling your patients that it can last 10 to 15, please? Because otherwise, this, this relationship with an implant company and the general public will be severed. Mm -hmm. And that's why the 10 to 15 years came about, which is only recent, as you said, it's only past few years that they heavily push it in the uh, marketing and we then obviously push it in our literature that the implants have to be changed. Not just for the capsular contracture reason, 
rupture. There's, there's a multitude of reasons patients change their implants or should change their implants at 10 to 15 year mark. The concept, the concept of mega pocket mm -hmm. was also came to some extent to Australia. Even Australia got the teardrop implants a lot earlier than America. And in the teardrop world of implant, you can't make a mega pocket because the implant will float. So the floating technique and massively squeezing your implant yes. was an American style. And if you operate on those patients, they've got a huge pocket. They can fit up to 800, 900 cc implant. So there's the implant sitting in the tissue and then there's all this space around it. It's like having a tiny implant just floating around like yeah, a wow. hockey ball and it's just, they were told twice a day you have to squeeze them so it hits the upper part, lower part of your neck and you bring them down and you, you don't get capsular contracture. And you wouldn't get capsular contracture because the implant is so mobile. Sure. The body doesn't have time to squeeze it. So that was the, that, and as a result of this cohort of patients coming through and the muscle not being dissected properly, so they would get a lot of animation. Mm -hmm. So this pocket would, from day dot, expand and expand. So in the revision of surgery, the number one problem is what do you do with this pocket? How do you minimize it? Minimizing pocket is very difficult. Mm. Opening a fresh pocket is very easy. Okay. And that's why breast augmentation primary is so much easier sure. than revisional work. Revisional work at minimum will take two hours up to four hours. Mm -hmm. So the concept of internal bra started with minimizing this pocket and the minimizing basically the technique I started utilizing was using very special strong sutures to bring it together. And in more recent years, using mesh to, in, in pockets which are hugely massive, the mm -hmm. suture technique is not enough. You do it, but as, as a stopgap, but you will have to use a covering, a mesh that it gets sutured in. So you create an enclave for the implant to stay central. Because mm -hmm. with aesthetics changing, the number one request of the past, I would say five, six years, is cleavage. You yes. have to get my cleavage right. I'll come to you, you have to get the cleavage. You get judged by the cleavage, you get executed by the cleavage. Mm -hmm. The cleavage doesn't look good, and that's where the fat grafting came. So the internal bra and the fat grafting is a marriage made in the cleavage heaven because they allowed me to then customize the cleavage and be able to have more predictability on how they're going to look as opposed to saying the patient is your chest ball, I'm sorry, you've got four finger gap, can you just go away? because that's where aesthetic surgery becomes a lot more, um, needs to become more predictable from a patient's point of view, from a consumer's point of view. They're not just happy with, well, I did my best. No. And um, it's your chest that's um, governing to what extent. I mean, that statement is true to some extent, Sure. but we do have techniques now that we can improve outcome that we weren't able to do 10 years ago. Also, what I find really fascinating is the aging skin. I've had an aesthetic practice for many, many years, so my patients are getting a lot older and they might have previously had a breast augmentation, say, you know, in the mid-2000s. As they age and they would like to revise that surgery, would they need a lift? Yes, so that's, that's very accurate. So most patients who've had surgery in their 20s mm -hmm. and now and most likely have gone and had children uh, with the implants inside you then would i would say 50 percent so about half of them would need a lift and the half probably about 40 percent would get away with not not a lift but one thing that patients forget and some of my colleagues like to deny is that breast implants age breast 
-hmm. It's not just the babies. And people who say, oh, breast implants, just there and you would have needed a breast lift anyway. I don't believe in it, that statement in its entirety. I think you be, need to be truthful and say breast implants will age your breast. Mm -hmm. It's just that you're going to go and maybe enjoy them, grow your confidence, all the positives, if done properly. However, having this pressure, this amount of mass behind your breast tissue without any real support, mm -hmm. it's not like a that we're putting screws and bolts on to hold you in place, it will drag the breast tissue down. So having large breast implants mm -hmm. in your 20 in particular will have an adverse effect on the skin. And if you're starting with a skin that is already compromised with stretch marks and you don't have that, you know, blessed with beautiful breast skin, then your half-life of your implant is limited. And um, you add one or two babies to that formula plus breastfeeding. Then we're in the age of weight loss, weight gain, incredible amount of women are now just sort of taking their amount of exercise to the next level. Um, and they all have a negative impact on breast implants. Mm -hmm. Speaking of postpartum, so a woman has finished having her family, she's dealing with weight gain, she's dealing with potentially postnatal depression, sleepless nights, you know, getting up to a, a baby. Talk to me about how important it is to allow space and time for surgery. Well, there is no space for surgery when you are looking after babies mm -hmm. and that's all serious stuff. Um, I think they need to look after what's important, which is yeah. the family, health, mental health, and um, surgery will come to those who wait. Body needs to go through a normal process of healing. Pregnancy is a big deal. Body's mm. hormones go into extreme extent to prepare the body for the delivery of the baby or nourishment of the baby and the delivery. And we're not talking about weeks of recovery. It could be years before someone can go back to getting to the maximum level of um, return to the physique post-pregnancy um, and with or without help of um, a gym instructor or PT or a, physio a good physiotherapist. So I think that has to happen. And, you know, and also patients need to realize that, you know, they might have one or two babies and mm -hmm. a third baby. And it's best to, you know, go through all that before um, attempting to see a plastic surgeon. So finish having all your babies, mm -hmm. finish all the breastfeeding and allow a certain period of time to pass for the skin to retract for your muscles to regain its tenacity to the extent that is humanly possible. Obviously, there are damages as a result of pregnancy. This is just a fact of life. Mm -hmm. And some of those damages are rectifiable by surgery and some aren't. And they just um, remain part of um, womanhood. Mm -hmm. that you can't fix everything. You can't take the clock back to age 20 and have that body again or those breasts, but there are things we can do in certain cases and, and provide, you know, someone um, who is suffering maybe from some low self-esteem as a result of the pregnancy and also have, they've gone through the mental health check, make sure they're prepared for the big operation. Mm. It's very hard on the body, pregnancy. I had the first two and I, I bounced back. I did a lot of walking and a lot of Pilates and I, it took me... A good year, but I, you know, I'd gained thirty kilos each Gee, time. Wow. I was 
very... But you were in your 20s, probably. Yes. Yeah, you bounced back a lot quicker. Very bounced. But the third baby, uh, I didn't bounce back in terms of mm. my skin quality. Uh, it, it was a lot harder, for sure. Yeah. Third baby does that, and twin pregnancy do that too. Mm -hmm. Twin pregnancy can cause a lot of elastin collagen imbalance and fracturing that relationship mm. between elastin and collagen. But again, well, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys no. uh, being pregnant. Mm, it's beautiful. Caring and um, doing the hard work. Exactly. So we hear in social media all the time the term mummy makeover. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't love this term because it sounds very light and like it's just a beauty treatment. But in fact, it is a surgical procedure. Can you tell us a little bit about what this entails? Look, I think mummy makeover as it stands in a social media setting is actually one of the biggest operations a person can have mm -hmm. in plastic surgery outside facelift or whatnot. So it is a big procedure because in terms of square meter of body being covered, it's huge. It's like your entire abdomen. In my patient cases, it's the back as well. So it's a 360. Most patients will have a breast procedure as a result, mm -hmm. be it a simple, straightforward, I should say, um, augmentation to more elaborate breast lifting or breast reduction. So the term should not be trivialized. Mm -hmm. I think it, to do it, it'd be dangerous and irresponsible. So it's post-pregnancy transformation of the body. Mm -hmm. let's, so, let's change it, Alex. So <laughs> it's a, a combination of abdominal surgery and breast surgery. Mostly, but I mean, to encompass bulk of it is that, but you can do a thigh procedure mm -hmm. too. So it doesn't limit itself. So the way it's been popularized is about the tummy and sure. the breast. Okay, so in terms of, we live in a society of instant gratification. Women are very keen to show how much weight they've lost postpartum and pose on Instagram with their gorgeous new arrival. Uh, how much time would a patient need to fully recover from this type of surgery? I think 18 to two years, 18 months to two years. Mm -hmm. It's not a procedure I would take lightly. Body needs to repair itself. The self-repair is a huge component of post-pregnancy um, changes to the body, and that is done through diet, exercise, the basic stuff, probably involvement of a very good physio who can assess abdominal muscle separation and work in a very natural way um, to improve that. Um, I think surgery is probably the end stage, mm -hmm. it's not the quick fix. It should not be viewed that way. It's a big operation, it's a long road, but the result in a well-selected patient can be quite transforming mm -hmm. and impressive, but there's no point operating on just about everyone because the risks are there. Um, they've got to be mentally prepared for the journey and they've got to be mentally prepared for the risk and things can go wrong. And if you've got two little ones at home or three little ones, then how does you know wound dehiscence and infection mm -hmm. go with looking after babies? And so sure. all that situation is uh, taking on a patient for major abdominal work and breast, mm -hmm whatever terminology we use to describe it, it's a big undertaking. Sure. In terms of uh, it's surgery day, the patient's had her procedure. How much time would she need to recover at home? How many weeks off work? We currently keep patients in the hospital for four to five nights mm -hmm. to get IV antibiotics and adequate medication and physio to mobilise. And then we recommend four weeks off work. Generally seems to be enough. Um, in some people with slower recovery, that can go up to six weeks. We're in 2023 and size has definitely changed in fashion. 
Tell me about the mini breast augmentation. Well, mini breast augmentation, I coined the term about five, six years ago because I realized finally that size doesn't matter. In terms of a cohort of patients who were coming out of the whole, the renaissance of massive boob jobs, uh, the end the end of the Pamela Anderson era sure. was women who were flat chested who wanted just have something. And going back to what I told you about our bikini culture, mm-hmm. um, the Bondi Beach culture was like, you know, can I can you emulate my padded bra when I go out? But my padded bra, I can't really go to the beach. Exactly. That's where it all started. Sure. So it's really the padded bra look on mm-hmm. the beach where you're just walking around your cozies and feel very good about yourself because you got something and something means like a B cup or a C cup, which seems like an overkill to produce that, but it's not for everyone. It really started with models. We mm-hmm. did a lot of models, a lot of agencies around this area and it sort of grew from that cohort of patients to, well, you know what, there are patients mm-hmm. who don't mind having that like padded bra look, but inside you. That fashion aesthetic is very, very different. Um, in terms of, you know, looking at a Kendall Jenner type aesthetic as opposed to her sister Kylie, which is a lot more of that, you know, LA vibe. So are you treating, um, or is your customer base both sides of the spectrum? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have a very large demographic of Mm -hmm. Kendall versus Kylie. Yes. Um, Europe versus America. Sure. And that's basically... You got Kendall's very Parisian, mm-hmm. her, every, her looks and her features and her breast augmentation, very natural, most likely 220, 230. Um, and then you've got her sister, it's all about Miami look. Yes. You know, it's all about curves and more accentuation of the curves, the better your surgery is. So I think for me, it's more assessing safety. Mm-hmm. I don't govern aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I don't set trends. I wish I could. But I'll follow those and we just know we live in a multicultural society mm. where we have people from all walks of life wanting a certain look because a certain look of Cardi will suit some people, sure. some patients who are um, not very tall and um, have curves and you can't remove the curves. Mm. So instead of trying to attempt to remove them and cause damage, you just accept it make them accept it and, and work with it. But not in a cartoonish way, not in a silly way that impacts them in a negative way in the long term. They get the immediate gratification, but long term they regret having a, an extensive BBL or, or a 7-800cc implant that would destroy or damage the um, breast tissue. So they come back and they'll years later ask you why did you do it you've got to be able to look in your patient's faces and say well instead of saying well you you made me you say well you know it was a decision that we both made and at the time i felt you know um this was appropriate for you so if you're able to have that conversation down the track with Mm -hmm. your patients then um you should you should be feel free to you know discuss aesthetics but not all aesthetic has to be Kendall Jenner and doesn't have to be Kylie. Yes. Um, you've got to be able to be versatile and be respective of people's wishes to some extent. Mm. What are the majority of your patients asking for in 2023? I think 2023 is going to be um, a year of moderate surgery. I don't think, I think the extremes have come to an end. I think extreme was part of the pandemic. Sure. Where patients had too much time on their hands and 
looked at too much social media and looked at themselves too much and working from home. But I think we're going probably back to some sort of normality, being sensible. And that's what 22 or 23 is, sensibility. I found that as well in post-pandemic. Um, new patients in particular who had never um, even contemplated having an anti-wrinkle injection or a filler, their expectations were maybe a little bit higher from a non-surgical treatment. Mm -hmm. How do you manage people's expectations? There's only one way, talking to patients. Mm -hmm. There's no easy way out. I've tried different ways, but nothing beats sitting down and having an open, frank discussion about expectation and levelling the expectation. And where you can't level the expectation, at least you, at minimum, educate them for the next person. Because there's a cohort of patients that will not listen to you, no matter what, and they will find a plastic surgeon or a surgeon or an injector to do the job. Sure. So your job is just to convey the information and try and you know, educate them as much as possible. So you studied <clears throat> medicine. What was the defining moment where you decided to become a plastic surgeon? I was always attracted to um, the concept of surgery and I was fascinated that you can use tools to alter um, human form. But I was initially attracted to um, cardiac surgery and I thought I was going to be a hero and save people's lives. But I, I don't know, somehow early on, I was one of the earliest guys in my medical school that I decided, well, I wanted to become a plastic surgeon and change form and function rather than just um, heart surgery or neurosurgery, which is limited to one part of the anatomy. So we're talking about late 80s, early 90s, when I went to university where plastic surgery is not what we understand today. It was more reconstructive, mm -hmm. burn surgery, post-traumatic, post-car accident. So. I went and spent um, three months in Canada in a burns and reconstructive unit and it was hectic and it's not what I expected. I didn't see any cosmetic surgery, even though there was some talk about cosmetic surgery, it was the beginning of Baywatch. It fascinated me that you could do that, be able to use your hands and your skill set to change people's um, appearance and improve their self-esteem and improve the functionality of their lives. So that was my attraction to plastic surgery and then never looked back. So I finished my medical school and then I did more plastic surgery terms and then then I geared all my terms towards plastic surgery. So general surgical terms which were geared towards plastic surgery. And then I took 18 months off and did my master's in plastic surgery um, at the University of New South Wales in um, distraction osteogenesis, which is um, changing the feature of babies born with deformities and then after that a year in Melbourne and then that was on the program in Sydney for four years so I did in total five years of plastic surgery training. When did you open your practice here in Double Bay? I started in Double Bay in, with someone else and then I moved to um, Darling Point which is the adjoining suburb so about two years in Double Bay, six years in Darling Point and I came back here 10 years ago. So I've been in Double Bay in some sort of, some format for 18 years, 18 and a half years. Last question, yes. what's next for Dr. Tavakoli? Remainder of my um, time as a plastic surgeon is going to be a combination of, I think, teaching the next generation. So we have registrars and fellows, which we are teaching pure cosmetic surgery because they're current, in the current climate of plastic surgeons, and cosmetic surgeons going at loggerhead, it's important that as a plastic surgeon that I train my kind and my um, registrars and 
doctors who've dedicated 10 to 15 years of their lives to the art of plastic surgery through hard training and long hours. That's what we're doing. We've got an establishment of a both paid fellowship and paid um, registrar program. And that's the focus at the moment. And I guess the next stage is looking at post-retirement. Mm. At some point, um, how I can be a contributor to plastic surgery and slow down and get off the tools, as they say. If someone was going to make the decision to have plastic surgery post having their family, what would be one piece of advice that you would give them? Get into shape as much as possible. Use uh, very sort of basic conservative means of getting to shape, diet, exercise, modifying, get into the ideal weight, BMI, if that's your end point or body fat index. Um, don't be in a rush. Surgery will not give you your 20-year-old body, but it will give you a modified version of it. Be prepared mentally for um, a rocky road and potential complication. Do your research and um, ensure the person who is going to do your surgery has got the adequate experience mm -hmm. and um, the right temperament to deal with in a, a long journey because it will be a, at least a 12 to 18 month association. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Alex Pike podcast. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it was great and um, interesting questions, beautiful setup and thank you. Thank you. Thank you.